so much. Amen. We're just, we're just looking forward to some great things in the Lord. Hallelujah. We've got some things planned that are coming up. I want to remind you again, we've got camp coming up on August 4th, so make ready for that. Uh, we're getting ready to, some, we've been asked, when are we going to have baptismal? And uh, so we're, we're planning that. Hopefully here within a, a few weeks or so, we're trying to get that ready. And so um, looking forward to that in a good time. And then also we're having uh, on the, is it the 30th on a Monday, uh, Memorial Day picnic. It's something that we always do at the church. And we used to do it at the church over, there was grass and an area for the kids to run and everything. So we did it at the church, but now we do it at the end of our street because we have a place for them to run and, and play and everything there. And so we're, we're going to expect that um, just come and bring your stuff and food. And, and so we'll remind you of that again, but that'll be the 30th of this month. And looking forward to just fellowshipping in that way. If you have your Bibles this morning, we want to begin to teach the Word of God. And, and uh, so we're going to begin in a psalm today. I don't a lot of times take my beginning text out of the, the Old Testament. A lot of times I, I don't do that. But this morning we are. And so I want you to go with me over to the second psalm, second psalm. And because I, of the nature of this psalm, I would like to read it, and we'll read it fast. It's 12 verses, so follow along with me. Um, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee uh, the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen. What a powerful psalm. Powerful. And I'm going to preach for a while and try to encourage you in the same thing we, we normally work in. I don't get very far away from where I normally preach because I believe that's what God has called us to. I believe you, co- you go according to your gifting. Can you say amen to that? And where God has gifted you. And, 
entrusted to you. So we're going to talk about kiss the sun this morning. Kiss the sun. Lord, we ask you that you would just stir our hearts. I've, I've got that, just that word on my heart, stirring up, stirring our hearts. Because sometimes, Lord, we can, it seems like we've served you a long time and, and we can get sort of complacent a little bit. But, Lord, if you stir us, if you stir us, then Paul said to Timothy, stir up. Stir up that gift that's inside of you. Lord, it kind of reminds us of a person stirring a fire and that the, the, the embers begin again to burn and glow and, and heat and warm. And so we ask you, you would do that process in our lives this morning. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want, if you would, to put John 15, 15, John 15, 15 upon the board. I said something last week, and I don't know if you caught it or remember it. But we used a verse out of, I believe it was Matthew, the 10th chapter, that, that Jesus said about his disciples and about his servants. That the disciple is not greater than his master, neither is the servant greater than his Lord. And I said this and believe this. It's just something that, that I hadn't really actually seen before, but we are continued disciples before the Lord. And, and what that means is that we are learning. God is teaching. Never do we get to a place where we have learned at all, and so we continue to learn. And uh, I consider that a privilege and an honor always to sit at the Lord's feet. Can you say amen? And how do we learn? A lot of times it's in studying the Scripture. A lot of times it's in someone else bringing the Scripture out, in preaching, in hearing. Faith comes, right? And so discipleship and, and the learning process never quits in our life, but we do come to a place of servanthood and that service to the Lord, that becomes, that becomes imminent in our life as we learn then we also, God requires to whom much is given. In other words, if we're given of the Lord, we grow, we get to a place then of service to the Lord, but we never quit being a disciple, and we never quit being a servant. I want to read John 15, 15, and is it, no, there we go. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord Doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. And so we take another step. There is the disciple. There's the one that's learning. He continues to learn. There is the servant who, who becomes useful in the kingdom of God. He now is training others. He now is, is preaching and working and and delivering to his family, delivering the word of God to those around about him. And then there's another step. And so I look at this, and what it means to me is that the closer that you get to the Lord, you begin at a learning level, and then the Lord is teaching, you're growing, you're serving. You get to a place where you know him quite well. And this is where we are in the Lord, is God there's, there's a place in you that we begin to know you. We begin to understand you. We begin to understand how he is and who he is and, and uh, his attitude, his heart, the things that he desires. And, 
and those kind of things we begin to understand about our Lord. So Jesus tells his disciples, which now are servants, he tells them, no longer do I call you servants or just servants. Now, listen, all of the apostles, they remember they classified themselves as servants when they wrote the, the letters and the gospels. They were all servants, so they never thought they, they quit being a servant, but they elevated from just a servant to a friend. We sing this song, I am a friend of God. Now that gets kind of frivolous because there's a lot of things you've got to know about him in order to be his friend. Come on, say amen. I've got people that I know, acquaintances, and I know them. I know who they are. I, I may have done business with them. Um, I know some things about them, but I really don't intimately know who they are. I don't know their heart. I don't know really their direction in life. I just know about them. You have some friends like that. Amen. You have acquaintances. In fact, sometimes even our relatives, we don't really know them very good. I mean, we can kind of know basically about them. But now let's take it to immediate family. In immediate family, I know our immediate family. And my immediate family knows me. And one of the things that they always like to do, and I always say, give me a chance, because they always say, Dad, I know what you're going to say. But I want a chance, you know, in case I want to say something different. But they know me, and I know them, and I know Kay very well. I know her better than anybody on this planet. She knows me better than anybody else knows me. And in that way, we become bonded in a different way than I do just friends that I may have known, may have known in school, I may have known on jobs. I'm just, you know, just casually known as friends. There's a difference there when we say we go from just knowing somebody briefly to actually knowing about them and becoming their friend. And so I believe that God is inspiring us in this church that, that we're not here just to know him as a distant friend or just to know him as a Lord or a master who we're not really very well acquainted with. And so I endeavor every Sunday morning, our preachers endeavor in the same effort, and that is to minister to you the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you will know him, not just the commandments, not just the rules, not just the church protocol, but that you would know him. This is the message of Paul, though, that I might know him. And I think it's the quest of every Christian believer is that what you want to do is know the master that you're serving. I don't just want to know how to serve him and what to do. I want to know the one that I'm serving, and I want to know him personally. Can you say amen? And so I have this desire to understand him, to know him, and, and I do know that there is much room for me to get to know him better. How many would say amen to that this morning? And so what I do is I make myself in a place, put myself in an available place 
so that I can hear his word and understand his word and talk with him and come to a knowledge of him because that's so important for the Christian life is not just to know the rules and commandments. That really is just duty. I want to get past duty in my life. In John 15, Lord, I want to get past just being a servant. I am a servant, but I want to get past that. I want to get to know him as my friend. And in order to do that, there is a process of time. And we just sang wait on the Lord, didn't we? There's a process of spiritual time in our life that you're not going to get it overnight. You're not going to get it in a prayer line. You're not going to get it in, in fasting a day. But all of those things go and they, they compound. And then, then we learn and we're taught and we grow step by step. A little here, a little there, until finally God does some more growth in our life. Amen. So I just read the book of Acts. The book of the Acts of the Apostles. One thing stands out above everything else in that book to me. And you can read it. And you can say, wow, what miracles happened in the book of Acts. And they're there. What great things that the early church had. There are just so many wonderful testimonies of, of healings and deliverances and just all the mighty uh, starting of churches and founding churches and, and restoring people and, and all the salvations many times by, by many great numbers. And it just enthuses us, all the great things that were there. But I find in the book of Acts, there's something that stands out above everything else, and that is the teaching and preaching was totally Christocentric, and that basically means that it was centered around Jesus Christ. Now, you can look at that book and say, that's the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2 and, and 3 and 4 and all the things God fell on the church. But really, their preaching is not about that. Their preaching is about the power of conversion in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about what Jesus will do in your life. It's about how he will change you and how he will direct your life. And if we could sum up everything that's in the book of Acts, I believe we would see it has compounded the testimony of what Jesus does when you allow him to be Lord of your life. If we look at the church now, if we look at where we've come to and the condition that the current age, church age is in, I think we could sum it up this way. That we have gospel delinquency. Crimes have been committed by the clergy. Listen through the omission of Jesus Christ as the constant, foremost, central subject of all things. He is the reason why we are here. There is no other reason. He is the reason why we serve. He is the reason why we are changed. He's the reason for salvation in our life. There's not another direction to go. He's central. He is the foremost subject of the church. And when we allow other things to take place, when we allow other things to come forward, then really he goes down. And when he goes down, he just basically leaves his presence outside the doors of a church. Still having church. 
I think Paul put it this way, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What is the power thereof? It's not some great explosion of spirit. It is that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church that you know him, you know his deliverance, you know his salvation, you know his power to change your life, that you were in sin and now you're not. That is the power of God and we will keep that forefront in this body. Say amen. See, even a fool can understand that God's design from the beginning, from Genesis 1 and John 1, that the earth and all that it is in it was purposed for his birth, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, for his ascension. It really was purposed that God would be incarnated into the earth. And if we see it any other way, then Christ is nothing more than a plus to our Christian life. He's not just the central theme, but he's just an addition to our God searching. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the final destination of everyone who is searching for God. Jesus Christ is the final answer for this world. Can you say amen? And now I'm going to tread a little water because we have so many different backgrounds. I was talking to the boys about this this week. Sometimes we're just traveling and we're just discussing things, so they get to hear it the second time. But if we, Pastor, if we become so theologically correct, we may lose the move of the Spirit of God in our services if we become, hang on, don't, don't nod too quick. If we become too accurate, about what we believe in Christ Jesus. Then we move, lose the moving of the Spirit of God, and I say to that, hogwash. The more you know about Him, the more accurate you understand Him, the more free you are to worship Him. See, this idea that if we if we use theology, and really theology is only just, it's just the study of God. It just, it's just to know who he is. That's all theology is about. I'm not talk, talking about the church rules and, and all the dogmas and things that they've written up, but I'm talking about knowing Jesus Christ, the correct theology of knowing Jesus Christ. If we use that theology, it will help us, it will promote us, but if we don't, really the idea of, of using theology as being wrong in the church and being hampering in the church and, and weighting us down in the church. That idea has been promoted by those who want freedom to enjoy ignorance. Because ignorance is bliss. In my ignorance, I can do anything I want to do. And listen to me. All over this country... Churches would rather be ignorant than to sit down and learn what God has to say about himself. I'd rather be ignorant so that I just throw my hands up and I just worship. You know, they say, just worship, just praise. That's all you need to do. And God will sort out the details. Why isn't anything else in our life treated that way? 
Why do we need to know? Some of you are accountants. Why did you just throw numbers in there and call it good? Some of you are concrete people. Why don't you just pour it on the ground and walk away? Brother Curtis, why don't you just let that elevator do whatever it wants to do and throw up your hands and say, man, whatever it does, this is great because God doesn't receive every praise. God has never received every praise. Listen, John, the fourth chapter and the 22nd verse, I thought about this where Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and he says to her a statement that they are worshiping in the best way they know how. They're worshiping our fathers, she says. Our fathers said that we need to worship in this mountain. And Jesus said a statement to her, which is pretty important, not just to her, but to us. You worship what you do not know. How wrong is that? Because if you don't know what you're worshiping, really your worship goes by the wayside. It amounts to nothing. And then the 24th verse, he says, God is spirit and those worshiping him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Watch it now. Because we just wanted the spirit of the thing. Because we just wanted to throw our hands up and just worship. Because we didn't care, really, just, just come in the house, whoever you are, whatever you are. God just receives your worship. No, he doesn't. He's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Say amen there. Accurate, inaccurate worship is futile. Inaccurate worship doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't praise the Lord. But spirit worship alone is only half of the designation. Really, it must be spirit and in truth. Just because you're worshiping at this mountain doesn't mean you're worshiping God. Just because you've wrote a song and put his name in it doesn't mean you're worshiping God. There must be spirit and truth in it. There's got to be spirit and life and truth in the worship of the Lord. So what does it mean? It means that you've got to become his friend. Come on, say amen. You have got to work to become his friend, to know about him, to know of his virtues, to know of his goodness and glory, to know... And coming into the house now, we're not just reading words on the wall. We're not just saying a thing and praising a thing. But we have got one that we are praising. We know him. We know he loves and enjoys the praise of his people. We know him by virtue of sitting at his feet, of learning of him. We understand then really what truth is about in him. The Greek word aletheia. It's true, true to facts. And sometimes we drop off truth with just being fact. But truth here at Aletheia in the Greek word means a little more than that. It's not merely just truth as spoken. It's the truth of an idea. It's the truth of reality. The truth of sincerity. The truth in a moral sphere. And divine truth revealed to men. Divine truth revealed to men. It's not just fact or fiction. What God calls truth is a revealed 
of his self-revealing, of his self-revealing of his person to mankind. That is what God calls as truth. Equal, equal to spirit, equal to life, equal to all those things that we feel in this man is the truth of God that we've got to hold to. And so therefore, all worship isn't of him. So I grew up in a time, and, and God bless everybody, there was a lot of worshipers that were worshiping the Lord. There was a lot of worshipers that were doing other things. And I've seen a lot of things that I would say doesn't need to be in the house of the Lord, but it's blamed on the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit had me do this and that and the other and, and jumping on things and busting things. That's not the Spirit of God. He gets no praise and no worship out of that. He gets praise when we understand who He is and we direct our worship as He is our Lord and our Savior and we're not just fooling around and we're not just acting stupid. We are worshiping our God and revere Him and know him and understand what kind of worship he desires spirit and truth out of us so how important is accurate theology in our life how important is that pastor I know that you work with that and, and I try and bring it in on Sundays a lot the Lord will give me a thing and, and I'll try and bring it to the church because it's not for the individuals for the whole body but accurate, accurate theology is, is something that, that we need to understand correctly. You see, how important is it? It depends on our attitude towards God. What is our attitude towards God? What is our understanding of God? I like to go back right here. I like to go back to the slothful servant who the Lord left talents with his servants. He likened the kingdom of God to this, a man who had servants who had land, money, and he gave a certain portion to each one of his servants. Now, the different gospels have a different rendering of that, but three, two, and one, and five, two, and one, I think it was. And the, the, the men that had the five multiplied it, had the, the three multiplied it. The man that had the one, he hid it in the earth. Because he said, listen, he said, I know that my Lord is his definition of the Lord. The problem was he didn't know the Lord very good. He was a servant, but he didn't know his Lord. And because he didn't know his Lord, he didn't know correct theology about his Lord. He hid the talent in the ground, hoping just to spare his life. That's all he wanted to do was just spare himself. He didn't care about whether the Lord gained on, on what he had left. It, that, that was none of his concern. What he wanted to do was spare his own life. He didn't know his master very well. And I think there's a lot of people who God has given talents and they don't know their master very well. They're hiding it. They're, they're, but their attitude towards God really, really, if we perceive him as unconcerned with knowledge, I'm trying to teach on a, you know, sort of a college level this morning. If we perceive God as being unconcerned with knowledge, that's no big thing with him. Then we forget truth and just proceed by unconditional love. See, the unconditional love church doesn't want knowledge. No, 
No knowledge. You talk with them, they want no knowledge. They're enjoying ignorant bliss. Everything I've got about me is unconditional love. It doesn't matter what I do, where I go, how I worship, how I live. None of that matters. It's all covered by unconditional love. But when you break into the Word of God and begin to understand our Lord, our Lord is not like that at all. But if we perceive Him as being concerned over the accuracy of His self-existence that He talks about in Isaiah 45, and I love Isaiah 45, he begins to go on about, is there another God? I'm God alone. I created the heaven and the earth. I'm the one who set it up. I put things into order. Is there somebody else to counsel with? If there's another God, I don't even know who he is. But let me tell you about myself is what I'm saying to you. I have formed this thing. I have put it into order. And that self-existent God, he is, he is exposing to us who he is. If he didn't care about that, he wouldn't expose it to us. If he didn't care about his character, he would not show us his character. In Hebrews, the first chapter, when it talks about the character of the hypostasis of God, I'll tell you this morning that God's character matters. God's character in the church matters. What God thinks about things matters. What God thinks about clarity and purpose, what he thinks about sin, it matters. God has a holy character about him. And if we don't teach the holy character of God, then what we have done is been unconcerned about the theology of the God that we serve. He's concerned about the accuracy of his name. Way back in scripture, Exodus 6, God it is who declares his own name. And don't get it wrong. Don't mess up on the name of God. The ever self-existing one, that great I am, that I am. Yahweh, God, I will be what I am and I will be what I will be. Don't mess up on that. His name is all power this morning. And don't mess up on the name of Jesus because in that name is salvation. And in that name alone. And in that name it is high and lifted up above all peoples, above all nations, above the earth, above the heavens. The name of Jesus is higher than any other name. Is he concerned about Without knowledge of who he is, I would say this morning, he is very concerned that his people learn who he is. Wow. He's concerned about his glory. I don't share my glory with anyone else, he says. I don't give my glory to the processes of men. I reserve my glory for myself. A lot of people don't understand that because they haven't taken the time to find out who the master is. And they feel like glory is to be spread around in all the, the, pe the ministry. that they're, they're sharing glory upon each other. And glory doesn't go to the ministry. Glory goes to the Lord himself. And the Lord alone always deserves glory and honor. It's imperative that his person be revealed. 
It's imperative. It should be the heart of every preacher to reveal to the congregation to the best of their ability and knowledge to reveal Jesus. I I say this morning, we're not here to serve echoes of Calvary. We're not here to be part of this church or part of a club. We're here to center Jesus in this thing, to pray with you about Jesus, to preach to you about Jesus, to honor him in worship. We're not here to put up. We don't have a lot of singers come because a lot of singers want glory, but we've only got one place to give the glory in this body, and that is to the Lord. We don't have a lot of big production things because men get glory about all that stuff. And I don't want men to get glory here. I want God to receive all the glory. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Everything in God is first person singular. I'm just so convinced of that. Why do you make such a big deal about that? Because I want to know him. Why why make that a a, a point of reference? I mean, can't we get through a service without saying that? I want to know him. I want to take the mask off. Can you say amen? I want to take the covering off, the calypto. I want to uncover this thing and see who he really is. It might scare me because of what I've learned in the past. It might scare me because of my preconceived notions that I don't want to let go of. But really, I need to uncover who He is. And I see my God and everything that He is and everything that He's about. It's all in first person singular. It is about Him. It's all through Him and by Him and because of Him. And I see Him singular in His person. Can the church say amen? And so I go to Psalms 2. I'm almost ready to preach now. Like, okay, that was that the introduction or what? Thank you, brother man. He preached about, you know, he's almost done. And he says, that was my introduction. But I'm not doing that this morning. I'm not quite done. So we get to Psalm 2. If I can't see God and his intention and purpose in the Old Testament, I might as well put it down and not read it. If I'm looking at, 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 at that Old Testament as a history book and I'm looking at those psalms as just wonderful literature, writing, and it is beautiful. The psalms are beautiful. I mean, if you ever feel like a little bit down, right? I mean, some of them you got to watch, but, but others are just, it's just like it just lifts you up because the psalms are a lot of them are praise. And you kind of get into that, you know, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And, and something begins to happen in your life. The psalm is a good place to lift you up and to help you up. But the psalm 2 is so interesting. I was reading and minding my own business. And the Lord said to me, go back to the book of Psalms. So I went in the book of Psalms and I read the first psalm. I love it. We have it memorized, some of us, you know. I love it. Don't stop there. I read Psalm 2. 
And then this was some time ago, and, and I just stopped, and I was thinking about it. Now, the Lord said this week we're going to go back there to Psalm 2 because, because really, if we can't connect the old and the new, then we need to throw one of them away. One of them's no good. Either the old and the new become one unit and God tearing down the partition or we just flat don't need the Old Testament anymore. I, I just don't, you know. There's a few things there that, that might be applicable, but we'll just leave it there. But, but always. See, a scribe that is instructed in the kingdom uh-oh. It's not a scribe that just showed up. It's a scribe that's instructed in the kingdom. He takes out of the old, and he takes out of the new, and he puts it together, and you begin to see a picture that you didn't see before. Because he's been instructed in the kingdom. Okay, he's come from through discipleship, and, and he's a Stuart now, and he is a servant in the kingdom, and now he begins to understand that the Old Testament was not about the Jews. The Old Testament was about Jesus. And a scribe that has some learning about that, now he's going to take out of the old and out of the new. And so Psalm 2, if there's something that we can see in there, and this is so beautiful because the Lord just, he, he does this. He works this way. David, they presumed that when this psalm was written, was the time that David captured the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. The Jebusites had had it for who knows how long generations. And originally, God had told Abraham that wherever you trod, that's going to be given to the people and. And so claiming that promise and believing that, David captures this city of Jerusalem and makes this city of Jerusalem his capital there and rules out of the city of Jerusalem where ultimately, you know, the temple will be built, built which was in the heart of David. He didn't build it. His son Solomon did. But it was birthed in the heart of David. This city, now David will in the Psalms begin to call it the city of the great king and not referring to himself, but he's referring to the great king. But in this psalm now, you can see kind of the reflection of David here. But yet the prophetic word of God gets a hold of David at this time and, and realize that this psalm really is not about David. This psalm is about the son of David. The son of David, or that title, is given to Jesus over 14 times in the New Testament. Jesus, thou son of David. David captures the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is king over the city of Jerusalem, but not the physical Jerusalem, because you have come to the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, not the physical city of God. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not a physical city. His kingdom is a glorious city that cannot come down. It is the city of God. So when David is writing this psalm, in his heart there's these parallels going back and forth because now he has established that this is going to be 
the great city that he rules out of. But yet God at the same time is going to reveal to him another factor or a spiritual factor, if you will. And the Lord does that with David. You you read the Psalms. Do you know that the Lord spoke out of David more than anything else? He quoted out of the book of Psalms more than any other book. Because it revealed him. And if we see the Old Testament as the revelation of Jesus Christ that is coming, then then we connect those dots. And David, I don't know, but that no wonder God loved him and he loved God. There's something about him when he would get in a circumstance of any kind that there would be this revelatory thing that happened to him. And he'd begin to pin it down thinking that it was about him, thinking it was about the nation of Israel. And lo and behold, it's really not about David. It's about the son of David. And so this second psalm, it, it, it comes to life in the New Testament. And so let's go over it really carefully here. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? See, in the book of Acts in the fourth chapter, Peter and John were put in jail. Remember the man that was healed, went running and praising God in the temple? And a whole crowd of people, I think it was about 5,000 people, received the Lord that day. They put Peter and John in, in jail and put them in front of the Sanhedrin and they questioned them. And ultimately, they let him go. And so then after that, they uh, went to the house where the disciples were, where where they were praying for them, and, and they came out with this, this text of Scripture, this part of Scripture, and they begin to explain, and I won't go there this morning, but the 25th verse, you could look at it, and, and you'll see that it's, it's connecting what David said in Psalm 2 so many centuries before. Why did the heathen rage? Why do they think that they can abolish what God has put in order. This is awesome. God said, I set it in order. Do you think the kings and the rulers can bring it down? And so John and Peter, they named off the rulers. They said Herod, Pontius Pilate, um, the Gentiles, and then finally the Israel nation. They said of their self that we'll bring this thing down, that we'll take counsel against God and His Messiah. We'll take counsel against the Anointed One. Uh, Let me tell you this morning, they couldn't bring Him down. Communism couldn't bring Him down. Socialism couldn't bring Him down. The woke crowd cannot bring Him down. God has established, he has established, and there is not a power on earth, there's not a person on earth who can alter the plan of God, not even alter the plan of God. It is established, and thank God it will come to pass. It'll come to pass every time. They said this, let's break their bands off of us. Isn't that what they said about the Lord? They didn't want him ruling over them. He's the Messiah come. 
And they said, let's break his bands off of us. And they did. They broke his bands off of Judaism. Judaism is still going to this day. Vacant of Christ. He's not in Judaism. They broke the bands off of him, all right. But in doing so, they missed their day of visitation. The Lord came down to visit the Jewish people. Come on. The Lord appeared in his holy temple, just like Malachi said. And there they refused him. The builders, it was, that refused the stone, the headstone that that God had set down to build upon. And they turned it away, and they despised it. And he was broken and smitten and despised of men. But surely he has been anointed of God. He carried our grief and our sorrow just like God had ordained it to happen. Amen. And then the Lord sits in heaven laughing at him. He said, wow, that's not the picture of God that I like. It's like the one where, uh, you know, he's in the temple holding that. What was that the other day? Somebody said, that's a bad picture of Christ. He's in the temple holding the little whip, a little bit of sweat coming down. He's just driven them all out of there. He said, that's a very bad picture of him. What the problem is, you don't know your master. Oh, man, he hates making commercialism of his things. Can you say amen? And, And so the Lord sits laughing at them. That's not a picture of God. He just loves everybody. He just can't stand it, you know. He just, no, he's, ha, 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 ha. You think you can turn my plan? (laughs) And the Lord is laughing. Boy, we've got some great ones in this world, right? They just think they can control and do things. And the Lord is just sitting in heaven looking at that, and he just is smirk on his face. These people, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? What's, what's, what does he say? What does he say? I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You think you can bring him down? No. God Almighty said, I have set my king. Now, everything that you intend to do, all the nation, you are just, you're raving. Why do the heathen rage? What is it about them? They can't change God's plan. Why don't they get into God's plan? The only thing you can do with God's plan is either refuse it or get in it. And I want to get in it this morning. God has has, has developed a purpose in this body and in this church, and I want to walk in it. Can the church say amen? Then David heard a thing from God. David heard a thing. Wow, this part. He heard a thing. And he said, and the Lord said unto me. Now, for all of you that that study pretty closely, he's not saying this about David. He's saying it to David. When the Lord said unto me, he's saying it to David. He's showing David a revelation now. And so the Lord said unto me, 
He heard the prophetic saying of the Lord, the decree of God unto David. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. He could not have been saying that to David. David was an adult man. Because we know that 28 generations later, this prophecy came to pass, and we read it in the book of Hebrews. And if you want to follow along with me, this is one of the most outstanding passages, and we use this, we use it often. Hebrews, the first chapter, is where this comes to pass. The fourth verse, having become so much better than the angels, he has inherited a name more excellent than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brought the firstborn into the world, he said, All Uh, And let all the angels of God worship him. And as to the angels, he said, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But as to the Son, your throne. And we translated, oh God. But that letter there, oh God, is really the God. The one God, your throne, oh, one God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness and is the scepter of your kingdom. Let me tell you, David might have thought a prophecy was coming his way, but it was about his son. It was about that one to come 28 generations later that God himself would say over the birth of that child in Bethlehem, today I have begotten you. Today I will call you a son and I will be a father to you and you will be a son unto me. And oh God, the one God, thy throne and thy scepter shall last forever and ever and ever. Let all the angels worship him. Let all the earth worship him. Everything that hath breath, praise him. Listen, I want to tell you again that you need to know that God inhabits the praise of his people, but it's not a God somewhere out there that we don't know. His name is Jesus. His name is Yeshua Hamashiach. And he will be praised. Amen. The Gentile nations will be his possession. Thank God for that. How many Jews do we have here this morning? Probably none. Maybe, does somebody have Jewish blood? I know a little bit. Kay's mama had a little bit of Jewish blood. Well, if you're not a Jew, you're not in, huh? Ask me and I will give the nations for your inheritance. What do you think, man? We're out here. We're a long ways away from Israel. We're hundreds and thousands of years from the cross, from the city of Jerusalem. But we're sitting in this little place in Anderson, California, United States of America, a different continent. And God has already said, ask me and I will give you the nations. And we're here this morning as outcasts and Gentiles that could never come in. But thanks be unto God, the promises in Jesus Christ is that we would become his kingdom. And this morning, we sit here in this little church not knowing that we are part of the kingdom of God that when he checks in his kingdom we're part of it 
And that's an awesome thing. Can you say amen? Glory. Glory. So be wise now, you kings. Everybody okay? You're, you're ready to eat lunch? We're almost done. Be wise now, you kings. Judges of the earth, wise up. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. And now I got to preempt this just a little bit. They came out with a song that said God's going to give you a sloppy wet kiss. I'm not preaching that this morning. Eros, some of lustful kind of thing. No, no, no. In fact, many of the translations will say do homage where it says kiss the sun. Many of them will say uh, to honor him in such a sense that greet the brethren with a holy kiss. That's what Paul said. Now, brothers, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not laying one on your mouth. It's not, not going to happen. But we grab our brother, and they're part of us. They, we join together, koinonia, we are partnership. And I'll take a brother, and I'll grab him, and, and just, you know, just a little hug squeeze. It has nothing to do with the fleshly thing. It has all to do with that's our brother. And this sense of the Lord... Get it out of your mind that you have some kind of a natural relationship with him. You know, kind of this Song of Solomon thing that we, we know the Lord in this, you know, kind of erotic sort of relationship. That's, that's absolutely derived from the other side. We're, we're not dealing with that. But I honor him and give him glory. Kiss the son as though I'm hug him. He, he's the one. This is the one that I put my affection and my, my heart and my life into. He, he is my hero. Can you say amen? He's the one who is the, the, the one I look up to. He's, he's the glory and the lifter of my head. He's, he's my savior. He has lifted me up. This thing isn't about a fleshly thing. This thing is about a God that we get to know. And we don't get to know him in that measure. We get to know him as the power of his spirit that he touches us and we touch him and we give him glory and homage kiss the son and then it finally says uh, blessed are all they that put their trust and let me include a slash faith in him no wonder Jesus said in John 14 1 you believe in God now we're going to correct this thing. Believe in me. People that are looking at him as something second, something apart and a piece of God, I, I just can't do that this morning. He's whole God to me. He is the great one that came down Yeshua HaMashiach. In this age when many other interests are being pushed to the forefront, let's hold fast to the teaching of the personal knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is that all right? Say amen. There's just a few scriptures. I mean, there's one scripture. 
that I can find that says be filled with the Spirit as a directive. And I believe it. It's good. It's awesome. But if you don't know what the Spirit is, you can go wrong. But the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, every one of these scriptures that I'm going to name to you three times fast here, they're all referring to growing and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Colossians 1.10, Philippians 1.9, 2 Peter 1, 2 and 8, Ephesians 4 and 13, 2 Corinthians 8 and 7, 2 Corinthians 6, 6, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and Colossians 1, 9, and many, many more that are teaching us to grow and increase in the knowledge of what? In the knowledge of just spiritual things, in the knowledge of, of you know, maybe churchanity and, and stuff about church. No, in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the message that's missing from the pulpits across America. And no wonder we have so much problem is we've left Christ out of the, out of the, the equation. He's just simply a, a Savior over here, and that's his job, and that's his duty. Listen, I want you to know he is everything. He is all things. He fills all things. All the godness, all the fullness of the godness dwelled in him bodily. He is the one. Should we look for another? Should we look for another? No, 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 no. John the Baptist knew it. He said, no, don't look for another. He said, I'm not him, but there's one coming, and that's the one that we have found. Can you say amen? My advice to you this morning, we're going to dismiss early. Five minutes. My advice to you this morning, Psalm 2, kiss the sun. Kiss, embrace. Get to know him like you have never known him before. Hard times bring that on for us, and we have been facing hard times. And I'm going to tell you, your only salvation is the same thing. It's the one, Jesus Christ. Do homage to him. Worship him like God directed the angels. Embrace him. And I like to use this last part of the marriage vow. All of you that's been married have probably gone through this. And forsaking all others, keep only unto him. Everybody say amen. Everybody say amen. Let's just stand up and give the Lord a praise right here and bless him for the service this morning. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord. And would you with me lift your hand and say, I'm going to make it my mission. I'm going to make it my mission to know him more and more. To grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, and you see the hands. You see the hearts, Lord, this morning. Thank you for this body, this church. God, we ask you to bless. Bear this upon us, Lord, continually. Not just this morning, but always. That you are the Lord that we're seeking, Lord. And we'll ever seek you in Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a good afternoon. We'll be back tonight, 6 o'clock.